Hi everyone, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 7 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn about ensuring profitability, improving cash flow, and growing their business. Today, episode number 7 is going to cover 5 lessons on NEC4. So just a bit of precursor on that, NEC4 is the new engineering and construction contract and it's the fourth revision or fourth edition and it is a set of flexible contracts that best work in a collaborative environment for procuring buildings and engineering such as road construction, bridge construction, that kind of thing. There are six main options of the NEC4 contract which are A, a price contract with activity schedule, B, a price contract with a bill of quantities, C, target cost with activity schedule, D, target contract with a bill of quants, E, cost reimbursable contract, and F, management contract. So in that order, they spread from the contractor taking almost all the risk on the project through to under the management contract the client holding all of the risk and in the middle there the target cost arrangements are based around there being a risk and gain share situation. One of the things that is quite unique around the NEC set of contracts is that front and centre is the requirement for all contracted parties to act in a spirit of mutual trust and cooperation. And for it to really work well, it needs a positive mindset and positive behaviours, positive receiving of notices, because the contract is really set up to encourage all the parties to talk to each other, notify each other of issues, put the issues on a risk register and talk about them, try and prevent them becoming these big problems that stop the job or cause big quality issues but it really relies on everybody working together and that is the thing with this kind of contract because the time barring and the prescriptive nature of some of the clauses really can make this an adversarial contract if it's approached in a incorrect sort of fashion so a lot of government procurement is done via NEC contracts in the current era. So you've got the likes of Scape Framework, you've got various national road and local infrastructure frameworks, and the likes of the P22 framework for delivering healthcare projects. The government is pushing quite a lot of big money through these arrangements, and its philosophy behind that is around partnering for a longer term so that there can be some drivers for positive effects. And the hope is to create this situation a bit more like a manufacturing situation where over time the contractor and the employer can work together to drive efficiencies up and drive costs down and sort of hone and refine and improve the process as things go. Some of the nice bits about this contract is that everybody has a useful name. So you don't have things like 
a contract administrator that sounds a bit like an overpaid secretary of sorts. You have a project manager and the person at the head of the contract isn't known as the client, they're known as the employer because they're the people that employ everybody. And then you've got the change process which is basically you take the contract sum and then underneath the contract sum you add any compensation events. And the idea being that as the project unfolds, compensation events are identified, priced and added to the activity schedule. And by the end of the project, everybody's got a record of where the job started and where the job is finished. And really following the process through properly, you avoid this situation where things build up and build up and build up and don't get agreed and don't get answered. And therefore you avoid the final account process. And that's not to say that these things can't happen, but the contract is there to kind of work and encourage this upfront dialogue. So it's really there so that you have the sort of the big boy conversations about this problem's coming, you've not done this properly, this might cost more money if it carries on how it is, this weather events occurred, and you get within a set period of weeks these issues tied up and everybody should know where they stand. But this is really one where it relies on everybody doing their correct job as and when they need to. And sadly, you can fall foul of some of the obligations. One, if you don't know they're there. And two, if you don't realize the significance of the procedures. So our five lessons, we're gonna talk about early warning notices, Compensation events, adjusting time and the program, pricing compensation events, and then a bit about acceleration and what that means in the context of an NEC program. Well, let's talk early warning notices. So the concept of an early warning notice is pretty bespoke to the NEC forum. It doesn't appear in the traditional JCT kind of contract. And it's really there as a risk management tool. So the idea is that both of the parties of the contract tell each other about issues before they become a problem, before they start costing money, losing time, and so on. And it goes against the sort of traditional approach to seeing what went wrong and then trying to plug the gaps at a later date with requests for changes or claims for this delay, that delay, this loss. And the process is set out fairly simply in the contract. The subcontractor and the contractor give an early warning by notifying the other as soon as possible as either becomes aware of any matter which could increase the prices, delay completion, delay meeting a key date, or impair the performance of the works in use. So we're basically saying if there's a problem that could cause additional time, cost, or impact the quality of the job, we have to let the other person know. And then there's another portion about risk reduction. So the contractor or the subcontractor may instruct the other to attend a risk reduction meeting, and each may instruct other people to attend if the other party agrees. So basically, Let's get around the table and talk about the risks. Let's talk about the early warnings that have been raised and try and do something about them. And it gives the opportunity for 
either the contractor to bring the employer along or the contractor to bring another subcontractor or the subcontractor to recommend another subcontractor attends. And in reality, these things don't necessarily end up being called what they are, but the contractor may hold regular meetings with various of the supply chain to try and talk about early warnings and issues. And it's basically just there to encourage good management. Now, with any of these things, there's a bit of a happy medium because as the clause is written, there are so many things that could impact one of the four criteria for giving a notice. And there needs to be a bit of a pragmatism about what is genuinely going to cause an issue and you want to talk about and what's just some pie in the sky thing that might happen. Because at the end of the day, this can cause an almighty amount of paperwork if everybody's really officious about notifying this, that and the other. But equally, there's a mechanism to prevent a compensation event from being awarded or costed in full if a compensation event gets raised for something that there was no early warning about. I've had this happen to me on a couple of occasions, but I'll give you the simplest example. We took down some notice boards during a refurbishment and uncovered some crappy plaster work. So we submitted a compensation event for re-skimming the wall. There were a couple of quite large, about three, four hundred mil bits of damaged patches needed where stacks of chairs or tables, folding tables, that kind of thing had been lent up against the wall several times. So we re-skimmed it, we submitted a compensation event for it. Fairly small beer really, but the project manager said, now you should have early warning this and asked me what to do about it. And I'd have said, just patch those couple of bits. So I only got paid a proportion of the plaster work, which none of us were pleased about, but at the end of the day, it wasn't big money. But there's a simple example of how it can go wrong. And this is a sort of a personal thing, I suppose. The balance has to be right in between notifying too much and not notifying enough. But like anything, one person's too much might well be different to another's. So really, there's just a bit of a common sense approach needed so that you're notifying things that may cause a problem, but you're not notifying every trivial little matter so that you just get lost in the process. So on to item number two, compensation events. So the contract requires submission of a notice for any matter which increases the total of the prices, delays completion, delays meeting a key date, or impairs the performance of the work. So rather than the early warning clause where we were talking about things that may impact the work or impact the time, we're now talking about things that either have or are certain to impact the work or the time or the quality. Now, one of the things that you really need to be aware about is the eight week time bar rule. So if you receive an instruction from your client, but they don't notify you that there is a compensation event associated, then there is no time bar. But for any other matters, which are compensation events, you have seven weeks to issue a notice about an event from the time that you become aware of it or the time when it clearly happened. 
So the timeline sort of looks a little bit like this. You've got seven weeks from the event to submit your notice. Once you've sent your notice in, the contractor has to respond to that notice within a week. If they don't respond to the notice within a week, you can notify them that they failed to respond. And two weeks after that date, there is a deemed acceptance of the compensation event. So it's accepted by default. Now there's a bit of uncertainty, if you like, around the time bar because some people don't know about it. Plenty of people do know about it, but then some people think that it isn't always implemented. And very few people actually seek to implement that all the time. It's worth noting that the timescales that I've outlined there can be varied in the subcontract and can be varied in the main contract as well by agreement. So it is important to read the clauses themselves and just double check. Now various people will tell you that this is or isn't something to worry about, that it never happens, it's not a problem, and that's all fine until you get a big issue, hasn't been notified in time, and then you find out the hard way that you've missed out on your entitlement. By agreement, both parties can state that the time bar doesn't apply and then it doesn't become a problem. And you would be wise to table that as an amendment because it really would let you know where you stand on the issue up front. Clearly, if you both agree to strike the clause out, then you don't have to worry about it. But if your contractor refuses, then you know you're going to have to adhere to it and you need to be on the front foot in notifying issues. So we'll delve into the full list of all the compensation events on another episode. But the crux of this is that time, cost and quality issues all need to be notified under one event. And all of those things need to be costed and or adjusted by that same event. So that brings us on to item number three for today, which will be adjusting the time. Now, program management on NEC contracts rarely justifies or warrants its own full episode. There's a few different things to discuss around the approach and how it's different to JCT land. And there are some specific requirements that you need to show on your program that we'll delve into another time. So the important thing about time is that you have the completion date, you have the planned completion date, and you also have these other parts which are key dates. And key dates in this context aren't just things like the completion of a section, albeit that that is commonly what they are used for, but they can also be key dates that a particular part or a particular responsibility needs to be completed. So you might have a key date relating to getting a portion of the building ready, and then there might be a contractor's key date for something else to happen. So the portion of the building that you've just got ready might house, I don't know, an MRI scanner. And that needs to be put into position before a wall's constructed or a glass window goes in so that there's enough access and so on. So adjusting the program needs to take in. So the compensation event and the time impacts needs to take on board not only the planned completion date and any changes to that, but also the changes to any key dates. 
the implication being that the contractor needs to make other arrangements for, in our example, the MRI scanner to be delivered. Clearly, if it turns up a week early and the room isn't ready, you've got a problem. And equally, on the flip side of that, if you're responsible for the masonry around that MRI scanner and you become aware that the delivery of that is going to be late by a month, clearly you can't close up the work in the same time that you planned. So I'm highlighting this because an awareness of your key dates and any associated impact caused by an event needs to be considered at the same time. And what the requirement here is for you to submit a program which details the impact of an event and how it moves the critical path and the various key dates on planned completion date. And as long as your program is fairly clear on what the critical path is, the process can be pretty simple really. And the NEC contract allows us to take on board actual facts. So if some delay has already been incurred, but the rest needs to be forecasted, then we can show the impact of the already elapsed delay and then we can forecast the impact of the rest so that we end up moving the completion date and any other dates all by that same amount. So say there was two weeks that already happened and a further week that we forecasted, we would be moving the program three weeks along and then all of the subsequent dates changing at the same time. The brilliant bit around this contract is that both the time and the cost are dealt with by the same event and that is going to bring us nicely into item number four, pricing compensation events. So this is a art form of its own really, the pricing of a compensation event, because the rules say that once you've submitted your price and the price has been agreed, that's it, the, the event is closed. So it's a one bite at the cherry approach. And that means that you've effectively got to forecast everything that could happen as part of the compensation event. And clearly, not everything that you forecast might come off. So there's a couple of approaches to how you deal with that. Now, the bulk of your quote is going to form the direct works cost and any cost associated with prelims and the management, particularly if there's additional time involved in the change. So if you're on options A and B, you've got the option there of revaluing the change on the basis of the same values of work that you've got for other items. So this is sort of remeasuring the change, repricing it much the same as a bill of quantities format, but you need to factor in the elements in the shorter schedule of cost component. And those are the things, the people, equipment, plant, at the rates that are agreed in the contract. So this is a reminder that you need to read those and make sure that they're reflective of your costs at the start of the contract. And for your options C and D, what you're effectively doing is resetting the target price by adding or omitting in line with the change. So those aspects are much the same as you would price any change under a JCT scenario. But what we have to do here is add the time effects in now. There is no going back to it later with a global mop-up to capture 20 variations that have prolonged the job. We have to say, hey, this is going to take me an extra week and add in the extra week. And basically, if you forget to do that, you won't be able to come back to it later. You lose that entitlement. 
So around a couple of approaches to getting this right. If you can be absolutely sure of you're going to cost yourself another week, then you price in that week. If you think it's a week, but it might be a little bit longer, then you can either include some risk items, which is my preferred method, or you can have a sensible discussion with your contractor and ask them to state some assumptions on the instruction. So they might discuss with you, right, we think this is gonna take about a week, you think it's gonna take about a week, but I don't want you to lose out when it comes to pricing extra work. So please make an assumption that this extra work is going to take you no more than a week. That assumption can apply to other things than just the time aspect. So you might need to price, I don't know, a replacement door and the contractor's QS tells you that assume you can source the replacement door at the same cost as the original or at the same time scale as the original, but we need it doing next week. So when you get to that door costs twice as much on an express lead-in period, you can revisit the assumptions that were made as part of the instruction. And part of the way to go around forcing these issues or getting these assumptions included in the instruction is by pricing in some risk items. So you might price one week of prelims, but then within your risk items, you might say, hold up, there's a risk that it might take twice as long as that, or I might have to wait for longer for the door to be delivered, or I might have to pay more money to get it quicker than the original lead-in period. So you start including some sums of money for that. So you've got an extra week of prelim. You've got weather risk. You don't want to replace the door when there's driving rain. And you've got the risk of being able to source it for the same price in a fluctuating marketplace. Now the contractor might not like the look of all of those risks, but you can say, these might happen and you're not willing to take the risk on completing the change unless the risks are reflected. And this is part of the nature of the one bite at the cherry approach. You have to get the price right now and you forego any future entitlement. Now there's all manner of risks that can unfold. And I've formerly heard of people pricing risk items that almost get to double the original price. And that's sort of seen as an almost default position. But again, this is a situation where it needs to be in balance because if you're just doubling the price of everything in case X and Y happens, your contract is not going to be very happy come the end of the job. But as I say, his alternative is to state some assumptions on the instruction, assume that this work can be completed in a week and won't be affected by adverse weather and or material sourcing delays. And what that effectively does is allows you to sharpen up the price without taking on board the risks involved. And remember, once those assumptions form part of the instruction, the risk doesn't sit with you, but it's you that can point out to the contractor that those risks have transpired and then request another compensation event. And final point to note on pricing is that this really is a one bite at the cherry, raise your issues now or forever hold your peace approach. So don't be shy and get things on the table. And finally, item number five on acceleration. So there's an acceleration provision in the contract. If the contractor wants to instruct you to speed up the work, he can do and you can try to. 
it has to be by agreement and the way the contract is written is that there are no guarantees. So one of the safeguards in acceleration under NEC conditions is that the completion date, which is the date set out in your subcontract that says when you are going to finish the work, that date cannot be brought forward. So what can be changed is planned completion. So the terminology involved here, completion date is the date that the works are contracted to finish. Planned completion is sort of akin to the date on your target program. So if you know that the completion date is say the 25th of May, but within your original program, you've got some bits of float, you take a view that you might be able to do away with some of these bits of float, or you might reassess the program a few months in and say, right, I didn't use all of those bits of float, so I'm going to be able to finish earlier. That date that you're now able to say you can finish is your planned completion date. And basically, you're using the program to monitor whether the planned completion date is going to be before or after the completion date, which is your contract completion date. If you're acknowledging that it's going to be late and the contractor has caused delays, this is where you'd want to be raising a compensation event to deal with it. If it's early and you've demonstrated you've made use of your own float and brought the planned completion date forwards, then you've effectively earned yourself some bumps. Now, if the employer is trying to instruct acceleration, what never changes is the completion date. Only compensation events can move the completion date and it only can move it further into the future or further away from the start date. So this acceleration provision effectively creates more distance in between the planned completion date and the completion date. So you may submit a price for accelerating the works and it might be based around working nights, it might be based around working weekends, doubling up on staff, making your work less productive, working longer hours, any of those things. Those things are going to come at a cost, but the contract basically says you'll carry out that acceleration and your contractor will pay you for it. It will be added to your contract sum or the bottom of your activity schedule and you'll then go about accelerating the work as you priced. But you don't get penalized if you carry out the acceleration and you still miss the date because the completion date remains as it was and it's that date that governs when things like damages might start to apply. So that's touched on the program in a little fashion. There's a hell of a lot more to say on programming under NEC contracts that we'll cover in another episode. But thanks all for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. And in there you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews and more. And it's less than the price of a cup of coffee per day. You can cancel any time. Also on all your favourite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin and you've been awesome.